0: Hey guys, John Paulemy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, August 21st, and this is the weekly market update. The disclaimer, anything that you see in this video or hear in this video or podcast is not to be taken as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence. I'm just a guy on the internet and I, you should not do what I say. You should investigate things yourself and see if it's right for your personal financial goals and risk tolerance. So uh, this week I wanted to start out, uh, this was on the internet, came across my Twitter feed a couple weeks ago. I forgot to put it on here in the past. But this is kind of like, what this is basically is a video game the Legend of Zelda, that's sealed, never been opened. It's in very good condition, evidently. It's for an NES Nintendo 1987. So this is a game. This is a video game cartridge, basically, for a Nintendo system from 1987. And this thing sold on July 9th for $870,000. So you probably could have bought this thing for 20 bucks new, I think that's a pretty good investment over the last 34 years. Um, If you had one of these laying around in your house, unopened and in good condition, you can probably sell it for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so I don't know who bought this. I don't know the video game market. I don't know the collectability of these things. I don't know anything about it. What I would say is in the scheme of assets, you know, we've talked about it before. You know, somebody's going to say in the comments, "Well, to somebody, it's worth that." Well, it is, or uh, they wouldn't have paid paid that kind of money if it wasn't worth it to them. But they're not going to play it. They're not going to open it up and play it, so the utility isn't there. So it just sits in this plastic because it's unopened. And I would, you know, I think this is more a manifestation of the unlimited liquidity that central banks have created. This is why I'm bringing this up. Um, I wouldn't give $870,000 for it, but you know, somebody did, uh, they thought that that was a, a good investment or something they wanted to do to, because they're wealthy and they wanted to, you know, bring back their childhood memories, who knows why people do what they do. But I would suggest that I show these things like the basketball shoes being an investment and that kind of stuff, uh, because this is you know, manifestation of money printing, basically. And it's the same thing in baseball cards, sports cards. That's what I collect. Um, I quit doing it because the prices got too nutty. Uh, and they were driven up by, you know, all the free money that was given away and printed. And people were just buying sports cards. And then, of course, a couple of high-profile people like Gary Vanderchuk, or whatever his name is, that internet personality, I think that's his name, He said that sports cards are a good investment. They're not investments, they're a collectible. But anyhow, this is what you see, I think, uh, at the top of a liquidity cycle. Uh, Just another indication of how nutty things are. So one of the things I wanted to talk about is some of the indicators that I use to try and do my overall view on things uh, as far as my positioning, especially as it uh, relates to boom bust cycles, uh, because that's basically, you know, my view is that liquidity and sediment is what drives these markets. So yes, fundamentals over the longer, longer term, but in the e- short term and intermediate term, I believe sediment and liquidity is what drives things. So This is the Bank of America U.S. high high yield index option adjusted spread. This is basically a spread between your treasury securities, your 10-year treasury um, note and high yield junk bonds. And so obviously you can see the shaded sections are when we've had recessions. This is the 2008 financial crisis. This is the 2000 bubble. This is the COVID, this is bug 19 uh, panic. And so what typically you see, you know, the spread is down, you know, at three and a half, four, something like that. You have these things when liquidity starts to um, become scarce or there's issues or people think something's going to happen. And so these, these will, this will jump this percent. So you see like during the financial crisis, uh, the spread on junk bonds and the treasury security, 10-year treasury note, you know, blew out to like 20%. And that would have been an optimum time, by the way, to be buying corporate bonds. But the same thing happened uh, due to bug 19 and back here. So what I look for is when this thing starts trending upwards and starts getting off that three and a half, four, and this, this, is, uh, this is published daily. This is the uh, St. Louis Federal Reserve uh, FRED data uh, website. You can go there and find just about any economic data point you want. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, it's pretty useful. You can really get bogged down in there. But um, the St. Louis Fed maintains this. It's all public. It's free. And this is one of the things I look for, because if you're entering a situation where liquidity, uh, you're going transitioning from a boom to a bus cycle, you're going to see a lot of companies that are have junk bonds, and those are usually companies that are doing very well financially or companies that are struggling, you're going to see, obviously, the price of their bonds go down and consequently the yields go up. Why? Because their ability to generate cash and service their debt becomes difficult uh, as liquidity dries up and as economics, the economic conditions go from boom to bust. So this is one indicator I use. Right now, as you can see, we're down here and, you know, very low territory. It seems to be turning up here, but uh, that could just be noise. We haven't seen anything really uh, break out yet. But uh, you know, this is this moves fairly quickly as you uh, you can see in the past, uh, and we'll have to watch this, especially as the Federal Reserve starts talking about tapering and all these other things they're talking about doing now. Possibly, uh, we may just get uh, a short little bump like we've seen here, or. You know, depending on what the economic conditions are. You'll note that bug 19 didn't really cause a big spike, uh, like you saw, especially with damage that was done to the economy, locking the economy down. And a lot of that was because the Federal Reserve and the Treasury decided that they were going to conspire to violate federal law and allow for the creation of special, uh, special situations where the Treasury would buy uh, corporate debt junk bonds, or at least threatened to. They didn't really buy that many, but they said that they would possibly buy a lot, but they didn't have to, just a mere threat. And then, of course, a lot of people front ran that and was able to provide liquidity to those markets, so it didn't blow out. But this is an indicator that I use. It's kind of a canary in the coal mine. This is another one that I use. It's kind of the same thing. This is a a high-yield pro-shares, high yield short fund so this basically shorts uh this fund shorts high yield debt and you'll see that uh it hasn't really done well over the last you know 10 years you'll see that the uh bug 19 crisis it kind of shot up as a matter of fact this is what i was crabbing about before Uh, i was watching this and i thought that wow if you're going to shut the economy down a lot of these zombie companies, you know, twenty-five to thirty percent of the S and P companies are zombie companies. They can't. Uh, they have a hard time servicing their debt. And I thought when you lock the economy down, you would have such a uh, an issue that this would come to the forefront. But as I previously mentioned, you know, the Federal Reserve anticipated that, conspired with the Treasury, and they were able to limit the damage here. Uh, so you saw this little spike. You would thought you would have thought that this would have been like blown out that a lot of companies would have uh, not been able to make their payments and it would have been an issue and defaults would have soared. But of course, that wasn't the case. And you can see currently, I mean, we're at record lows here. I mean, for this particular security, because the uh, there seems to be a lot of complacency in the markets and a lot of liquidity out there. And so there's really no indication that we are, you know, if this, if this started to, uh, 50 day started to cross over this 200 day and this 200 day bottom to start moving up. Maybe I'd get a bit worried if this traded above the 50 day, uh, then I would get worried. But, you know, we've seen time and time again where anytime this has gotten a little bit of, I believe this is when they had the last taper tantrum um, a few years ago. Uh, and, you know, or maybe that was right here. I'm sorry, right here. You can see these are just little hiccups because, You know, they reversed their positions very quickly. This is when uh, I believe when Trump got elected, if I'm not mistaken. And so there's little hiccups here. But, you know, in the end, we've had so much we've had these zero rates. since a great financial crisis. This chart only goes back to 2012. I could have expanded it further. But you get the point. There's really no liquidity issues out there right now. This is another thing that I used to try to anticipate if there's uh, real liquidity issues. So this is another thing. Um, this is the ISM Manufacturing New Orders Index. And you will note that here's the previous recessions, the GFC, bug 19 event, uh, the, the uh, tech wreck. And you'll note that uh, you will see orders, new orders typically turn down. This is another indication. Um, right now these are rising, so it's not really an issue in the economy. To anything to get worried about. Um, this is another chart. This is the uh, something I tr- track on stock charts. I have an account there. Uh, I think it's like 25 bucks a month. And that's where I do a lot of my track, a lot of stocks. It has a lot of tools in there. Uh, if you pay, I mean, you can use it for free, but the, basically this is the um, uh, Goldman Sachs commodities against gold. And basically what I'm looking for here is you will typically, every time that you have in the past, and I don't show the dates on the bottom, I'm sorry, but basically I'm looking for this to roll over. When this trades below this 50-day or the 50-week moving average, um, you'll, you're will you usually transitioning. This is the 2008 uh, great financial crisis. So you'll note that when we rolled over on this and uh, commodities were performing worse than gold, uh, and you drop below the 50-day, that's usually the transition from a boom cycle to a bust cycle. And uh, we were already, the thing to note here is funny, is um, this is bug 19 around here. Um, this has been the subsequent reflation that we're in. As you see, we're trading above the 50-week moving average, actually making two-year highs here recently. So I don't see anything issues right now, although it appears to be kind of leveling off. But the you'd want to see this roll over and trade below this 50-week. But you'll note that this is like back in 2018. So we were already rolling over before bug 19 uh, as far as the economy was concerned. And uh, that was noted. You know, we had some liquidity issues and some other issues. And um, so that's interesting to know. But this is, now some of these things can give false indications, right? But they have never not worked as far as when we did have a boom to bust transition they have always worked. They have a tendency sometimes to give false uh, signals, but they have never not given a signal when, when we've had a transition from a boom to a bust. And so the point is is that um, the point is is that there's a lot of noise in the market in the short term. Like oil's down the last couple of weeks, and so are commodities over the since uh, a couple of things have happened recently in the resource markets. Uh, obviously the variant that's the, the, the D variant, if you will, uh, has gotten in the news. Um, but I think if you go look at, uh, some of the data, the effects are not going to be like the previous, uh, incident last year. We're going to see there's a period of increased cases, but you don't have the same amount of hospitalizations and deaths. And I just don't think you're going to see the lockdowns and the real, um, negative implications to the economy that you saw last year. And that's a perfect example is India. I mean, India was in the news a couple months ago. If you you recall, you may not recall, but it was like, you know, doomsday, blah, blah, blah. And then if you go look at the case counts now, if you look at Worldometer, the cases have collapsed, the deaths have collapsed. If you look at the um, PMIs and ISMs and things like that, the economy is roaring back already uh in india and so i suspect the same thing will happen in these other countries uh we will go through this spike of cases usually based on some of the uh statistics that i've been seeing about a 12-week period uh from top from beginning to end we're probably in the middle of that right now in the u.s it looks like some of the states are rolling over already and i think once that narrative takes hold uh you will see uh the bottom in some of these things and maybe uh, be looking forward to additional rally because nothing I see on the liquidity front and sediment wise has not been uh, damaged sufficiently to change my view. And that's why you got to have you got to have some kind of methodology you're using uh, to try to track these things. So you're not just getting whipsawed in and out. You know, if I decide to make a change in the newsletter and move out of resource stocks, I don't want to be two months later, reversing myself, yo-yoing people. Uh, we're trying to catch the big trend here. And these secular trends and commodities, I believe is what we're in, a secular bull market and resources and commodities. We could have cyclical bear markets inside of that. That has been the historical narrative. But I wanna make sure that I'm catching the majority of the trends and that I'm staying on trend for the secular trend. I don't wanna get whipsawed out on emotion or news events. Uh, I want things to, uh, I want to catch the big meat of the moves. And I don't want to be whipsawing people in and out and trying to trade the thing. It's just, it's it's too hard. So these are some of the indicators that I've used, I have been using, I've been putting it in my toolkit so I can improve my uh, uh, discernment of what's going on. Obviously, they're not 100% accurate, nothing is. But I believe these are the type of things that have proven themselves to work in the past to indicate. Uh, transitions between boom cycles and bust cycles. As I said, my theory is that the markets mostly move on sediment and liquidity, and that's what I need to be looking at. So this is uh, Dave Collum. He's a professor of chemistry at, uh, what's the name of the university? Somewhere in New York. I can't remember now. Uh, It's a big university, Cornell. And, uh, but he does a lot of discussions about, events. Anyways, here's a tweet. I just want to throw this in here because a lot of people will say to me that, you know, they don't think things are connected, but they are. And here's uh, something here. It says the chairman of the BlackRock Investment Institute within the $8.7 trillion investment firm BlackRock, which we know is Larry Fink's deal. And they've been in the news recently for buying up a lot of single family homes and then turning them into rentals. Uh, plus some of the other things they do. But anyways, just to show you how connected things are, the chairman of BlackRock Investment Institute has a brother who is the senior advisor to Joe Biden. He has a wife who is the White House personnel director and has a daughter who is now in the National Security Council. Um, So what I try try to point out is a lot of the people that are in these institutions, a lot of people that are part of the Um, Masters of the Universe, the Pointy Shoes, the Davos Man Collection, they all go to the same schools, they all run in the same circles, they all intermarry, they all hang out together, uh, and I guess that, you know, they never, I'm sure they never talk about anything, or, you know, the people at BlackRock, you know, don't try to influence policy when the guy uh, has a brother that's a senior advisor to Joe Biden. I'm sure they're, so, they're such angels that would never happen. They would never try to gain an advantage. They would never conspire to increase their wealth or power. Yeah, right. Okay, now we've gotten over that. So talking about India again, um, and this kind of is part of the discussion around the long-term viability, the long-term prospects for oil and gas and coal. And here's India, a country of 1.2, 1.3 billion people, a country that's trying to improve the station of life for the people there, uh, people that are trying to uh, move up the economic ladder, uh, people that are trying to industrialize and urbanize, and that takes energy. It takes concentrated, reliable, relatively cheap energy. So what are, what are India's total primary energy consumption by fuel type? Well, well over 40% of the primary energy consumption in India is coal, um, followed by petroleum and other liquids. So right there, you're talking between coal and uh, oil and gas, you're talk, or coal and oil, petroleum, you're talking about 25 plus 45, 70%. And then they have biomass and waste, which is 20%. And then uh, natural gas, which is about 5%. Hydro and nuclear are like, looking like they're in the single digit, low single digits, and renewables on the bottom. And so you see the point is, is that regardless of what the US and the EU and the rest of the um, self-hating people in the West do as, re- as it relates to energy, these emerging markets are going to uh, using for a long time, massive amounts and growing amounts of hydrocarbons. And uh, they've said that the, I've talked about that in previous videos where the energy minister of India has plainly said that not only will they use it, it's a, it's a moral imperative that they do that uh, because of the poverty they have there and to better people's lives. So When we talk about getting rid of or putting sanctions or the zeitgeist of shaming oil companies and coal companies and pension funds divesting, that's all very good in the West and the West will pay the price for that with higher energy prices and less manufacturing and less uh, their standard of living will stagnate and possibly go down. That will not be the case with people in the East and people in emerging markets. Uh, They're not going to sit by and go along with this just because a bunch of demented people in the West seem to think that, you know, this, that's the policy you want to follow. I mean, you're already rich. It's easy to make uh, dumb proclamations. So, this is a chart just to give you an example. Here's an opportunity. You know, you see the yellow line, if you will, or the line that's spiking to the right. That is the uh, Newcastle Coal Futures. Uh, coal prices at the Newcastle port in Australia, you're up to like uh, $172 a ton. And what you have below that is the stock price of the coal company. I forget what WHC, what the symbol is. Um, But it's a coal company that trades on the Australian exchange. You can see that going back at least to 2009, the share price of this particular coal company pretty much tracked, the Newcastle coal price, um, you can see that uh, even back when coal prices were you know, $120 a ton, this particular company was trading at probably almost double what it's trading now. And now you have prices spiking. And uh, I guess what, what I'm saying is this is a pretty obvious divergence. And so this is the kind of things you should be looking for. Uh, I suspect that the share price will go up. Now, a lot of people are divesting themselves. When I say a lot of people, I'm talking about pension funds and uh, other fund managers, I'm sure insurance companies, I'm sure everybody, these corporate types in the West trying to virtue virtue signal their ESG credentials um, are going to be divesting. So there's a lot of selling pressure. So I think what it's going to take is that a lot of as cash builds, because obviously, when you have these kind of price increases, you will see um, a consummate uh, reflection in company cash flows and balances. Uh, it will require probably uh, a lot of these companies. Hopefully, uh, they won't have a lot of opportunity. I think to expand their markets because as like I'll show in another slide coming up. It's getting more difficult to build new mines, but you know, we should see the cash recycled in a stock purchases and buybacks. And that will be accretive to existing shareholders. I think eventually the returns will be so great in a lot of these companies that a lot of people are not going to, you're not gonna hit your benchmark if you're not involved in these companies, I guess is my point. And uh, these are undervalued companies relative to their current business prospects and future business prospects. And the stock prices are not reflecting that. They're reflecting a world that I don't think exists, one where hydrocarbons are going to go down in uh, use significantly. I just do not see that happening in the short or medium term. And so this is what you're going to see. We see this a lot already, a lot of lagging of a lot of these energy names. But I suspect that uh, they will be playing significant catch up as we go forward. So... This is an interesting trend. Um, so what you have here, and this is just not, this is Exxon's production. You can see it trending down since about 2010. And the reason why is you know you had the big price spike going into 2008, 2009, where oil was $140 a barrel. I'm sure a lot of projects were sanctioned. You saw them probably come online over the subsequent two or three years Uh, After those high oil prices, you see where Exxon's production peaked out at about four and a half million barrels per day of oil equivalent. And it's been a steady decline since. You're now at the lowest levels of oil production at Exxon since the merger with Mobil. And uh, this is not good. I don't see any, any of this turning around. You see this not only at Exxon Mobil, you see this at Shell and several other companies. I posted a chart about this a while ago, where it showed most of the big majors, like the big eight or 10 largest oil majors in the world, and pretty much all of them had declining production profiles. And that's not good. That was before uh, we had the big mandates now, the big ESG mandates and the big, uh, you know, activist investors getting involved and forcing these companies to get out of their core business. So I don't see itself this reversing itself uh, because of the pressure on these managements to get out of oil production and get into some other, I guess, hydrogen or whatever they're going to get into. Um, but this can, this, is, this has to be bullish for oil longer term, right? I mean, um, non-OPEC supply is shrinking. That's part of our thesis of why I think we're going to have an energy crisis, and like I said, this is a common theme among many of the large uh, multinational oil companies. They're just under tremendous pressure everywhere, and not to mention they've had low oil prices, and they've been—you know—it's hard to go and sanction new projects when you have certain hurdle rates you have to beat and returns on investment, and they're just not there. Now I suspect that you know when oil's 150 or 200 dollars a barrel, and it's there for a while or well over a hundred for some sustained period of time, obviously capital will come back into the market. Um, Low prices cure low prices. So, but, you know, the oil services industry is going to be another benefactor of that. It's so atrophied. It's like, you know, it's, when I was in the Navy, I used to be a power lifter. This is kind of an interesting story that kind of ties into this. Um, and I used to do, I was into like all of strength, strength competitions. Like, um, in addition to powerlifting, I would do like Scottish Highland games. I would do, um, arm wrestling. And so what happened was I was in this arm wrestling contest and I was actually just like five, two or three pounds over into the heavyweight division. So I was like, 221 pounds or something i can't remember the exact thing but i mean i should have been in the lower division but i didn't realize the cutoffs for the weights so i'm in there with guys that are like 300 pounds and stuff. i mean these guys had i was more lean then i was uh really into lifting i was strong but i mean leverage is a big part of this you know arm wrestling thing long story short i went up to about against this guy i mean he was just like a monster and he's he snapped my humerus bone in my upper arm on my right arm in half. I mean, this thing, I mean, we're surging against each other and this thing just parted. I mean, snapping like a dry twig. So long story short, I had to go to Elmendorf Air Force Base when I was in the Navy. I had to go to Elmendorf Air Force Base. I had to do surgery. As a matter of fact, my right arm is about an inch and a half shorter than my left arm. You can see that uh, if you ever meet me, you'll, I can put them side by side and you can obviously see it and there's a bow now in my humerus where they had to surgically and put a plate in there and fix it so the point is I had to wear this cast like in the position of like an L like across my stomach or chest area for like I don't know months man I mean it was like a long time and so they took this thing off and it was like my arm I mean it looked ridiculous here I am I was still working out with my left side still trying to do keep up my uh My fitness as best I could. I couldn't do a lot of chest and shoulders, but I was still doing what I could do with dumbbells on my left side. And here's my arm on the other side. It looked like Stretch Cunningham or something. I don't know, like that doll. I mean, I had this skinny little right atrophied uh, um, arm on the right. And, you know, it took a long time for that to come back. Just to get where I could straighten my arm out took like a month because it had, you know, the ligaments and stuff were. There had been no exercise there. So everything had just shrunk. I looked like a concentration camp victim arm. It was totally bizarre looking and weird. So anyways, I was able to bring it back. It took time and it took effort. Well, it's the same thing with like oil services, right? They've atrophied. They've been in liquidation. They've A lot of companies have went away. A lot of people have left the industry. A lot of equipment has rusted out. And so if we do get in a position where cash flows improve, where oil goes to hundred dollars or one hundred and fifty dollars or something crazy like that and stays there, you're not just going to be able to go right out and start drilling again. There just won't be enough people, equipment, expertise, and so this is why I think the energy crisis, when we do have it, will be last longer and stay at a higher level. So uh, I don't know when that's going to hit, but uh, you know this is not a good trend, and but this positive for uh, and bullish for oil longer term in my view. So this was an interesting article, uh, link in the show notes. I mean, I have to laugh a little bit. This is a, this was written by a guy from Morgan Stanley in the FT. And I think the title of it was like Greenflation. They made this term up, threatens climate change action. And Basically, the gist of it is, is that, oh, lo and behold, I have to give this guy credit because he actually thought this through. He didn't just, he's not just a um, shill. Um, he gets it but you know, I don't think he gets the full picture, but he got, he got most of it. So what he says here is fossil fuels will be needed in the green transition, but vital supplies are being squeezed. Yes, that's our thesis. That's why I'm bullish on hydrocarbons longer in the medium and long-term. The world faces a growing paradox in the campaign to contain climate change. The harder it pushes the transition to a greener economy, the more expensive the campaign becomes and the less likely it is to achieve the aim of limiting the worst effects of global warming. Well, whether or not you subscribe to man-made climate change is irrelevant, but he's true, he's correct, because the whole green transition, the whole transition to their promised land of a new green economy has to be fueled by hydrocarbons. This guy figured it out. Most of them still haven't figured that out. And so they're doing everything they can. The article goes into it, doesn't just talk about oil and gas, talks about mining and the fact that all of these things that these people want to do with batteries and solar panels and this, that, and the other, they don't understand that if you don't mine it, you don't have it. And mining requires tremendous amounts of energy that you get from diesel and electricity. And where are you going to get all this stuff from? So that's why I've said before, you know, you look at a wind farm or a solar farm, the thing cannot produce enough usable energy to replicate itself, okay? And, or if it can, it's like a one, it's not worthwhile doing. It's like one to one or one to two or something crazy like that. The return on energy invested is so low, it's almost negative. So this guy talks about this. And so he goes on, he says, new government directed spending is driving up demand for materials needed to build a cleaner economy. At the same time, Tightening regulation is limiting supply by discouraging investment in mines, smelters, or any source that belches carbon. The unintended result is greenflation, rising prices for metals and minerals such as copper, aluminum, and lithium that are essential to solar and wind power, electric cars, and other renewable technologies. Now he didn't write this last blur, but this is my catchphrase that I've been using since for a while now, and it's heads we win, tails we win more. You're going to pay me on both sides. You're going to pay me for those hydrocarbons, and you're going to pay me for that copper and that uranium and everything else because the prices of all those things are going to go through the roof also. Heads we win, tails we win more. Either way you want it, straight or French, we get paid. And so this is part of the problem, right? The Canadian government rejects new met coal mine. Well, what is met coal? Metallurgical coal is used for making coke what's coke used for coke is used in the steel making process in the oxygen blast furnace to convert pig iron into the uh, process that leads to making steel and 70 to 80 percent of your steel is made that way still now yes there's emerging technologies they have a plant a test plant in sweden that uses hydrogen and all that i get it where do you get the hydrogen from no one talks about that it the energy required to get the hydrogen probably costs you more than just go ahead and using met coal. But long story short, people don't get it. And so here we are again, where you know, we've talked about in the past, you know, if you have an existing met coal mine that's operating, you're in the cuckoo bird seat. Why? Because it's getting increasingly difficult to open new mines. And who's going to put up the millions and hundreds of millions or billions of dollars with no certainty of any return because the governments are doing everything they can to keep you from bringing these things on. But yet, on the other side of their mouth, they're talking about they want this green transition. So this just shows you how stupid politicians are. They don't really know what they're talking about. They just say stuff. And in the end, you have to approach the markets and you're investing and speculating based on facts, not what you wish to happen. These politicians just are looking to get reelected based on a two and four year election cycle. And so they don't even know what they're talking about. They probably can't even do simple math. They don't know what coking coal is. They don't know what met coal is. And they don't look at this one individual mine. Now, it could be that this one individual mine show, I'll put a, a, a link in the show notes so you can read this. It may be that this mine should not be operated, should not be allowed to come into existence because it is going to have a deleterious, Uh, it it would have a deleterious effect on the surrounding environment. I don't really know. I'm not involved in it. I don't know. But what I'm telling you is, is that if every politician responds to every first nations or environmentalist or any other lobbyist groups uh, desire to stop every project, you're going to have a heck of a time building out the new green economy, unless you're going to get everything from, you know, third world countries where there are no uh, controls in place like Congo and these other places, you know, or get your polysilicon from Western China, where there's allegations of slave labor being used, which is causing a big problem for the whole solar supply chain. So here's what the article says. Following a rejection of the Grassy Mountain Metallurgical Coal Project in Alberta by a joint review panel last month, Benga Mining has now received a second no, this one from the federal government. In a decision released on Friday, Jonathan Wilkinson, Canada's Minister of Environment and Climate Change, said that a review of all relevant information, including the joint panel's June 17th report, showed that the project is likely to cause significant adverse environmental effects that are not justified in these circumstances. And that very well may be true. I don't know the facts. I'm just pointing out that you're going to see more of this. I predicted we would see more of this. and We will see more of it. The problem is, is if you don't mine it, you don't have it. And how do you make steel for the wind turbines? How do you make um, steel for the different components that you need for your green revolution? That's not discussed by Mr. Wilkinson. I don't think he has a clue what the green new deal or the green revolution means from a mining and from a supply chain standpoint. What he's going to find out, we already know we're going to get very wealthy from it. Heads we win, tails we win more. Benga, a subsidiary of Australia-based Riverside Resources, wants to invest $800 million to build an open pit operation at Grassy Mountain with a 23-year mine life. Excuse me. <coughs> um, yeah, that's a lot of money. And what will happen is they'll probably try to appeal this. Hold on, let me take some water. they'll probably try to appeal this and mess around and maybe the government will change and blah, blah, blah. It's the same thing, right? That happened in the US. You know, when the Trump administration came into power, it started reversing uh, a lot of policies and edicts that came from the previous administration. Now that the Trump administration's out, we have a reversal, we have this new administration that has constituencies that put the environment above everything else. So Um, yeah, you're going to have less supply of mined materials that are necessary for the Green Revolution. And I don't think that's given much thought or any thought. So real quick, Tanker Fundamentals. This is uh, off Twitter. This is Calvin Froedge. Um, This guy actually runs that uh, service called Tanker Data. I was talking to Nick Jones this week. Uh, You might see him on Twitter, Grain Jones, and he has a subscription to this. I don't. But he was saying this is a pretty good service, but I might check it out. But um, anyways, this this guy kind of, Calvin Froage has a lot of data coming in. So he sees a lot of good data. So here's some fundamentals on the tankers, right? Average age of the very large crude carrier fleet is the highest in 20 years. Suez Max, oldest ever. 25% of VLCCs and Suez Max, their ages are greater than 15 years. This is when, if you remember... I talked in the past, once you get 15 years and plus, you're starting to get into some very high costs to do your, um, dry docking and your certifications, because as a tanker gets older, it re- is required to go through more and more, uh, stringent inspections and certifications because obviously the ship is getting older and they don't want these things spring leaks and have crude oil go all over the place. So, um, One of the things that's going on in these markets is that the order book for new tankers is also at uh, like decade lows. And a lot of your shipyards now are full until 2025 because uh, there's a lot of container ships. We've had the the big move in container rates and shipping rates in the container fleet. And that's led to a lot of people putting in orders for more container ships. Which will cause a bear market in that industry in a couple of years. But regardless, talking about tankers, so what are the catalysts? Sanctions enforcement on illicit trade and oil demand recovery. So what are they talking about? Illicit trade. So you've got Venezuela and Iran moving oil around. I guarantee you they're not, they don't, they'll use any ship that will carry it. You're not, you're dealing with some unsavory characters and they're not following regulations. And so you have a pretty decent sized part of the fleet that's running around. Uh, working with these folks that's not putting their ships into that are older ships that are not putting the ships through the surveys that are not having them inspected. And uh, you know, I think either enforcing that uh, enforcing those ships into scrappage or um, lifting the sanctions on Venezuela and Iran, where they would then use, come out from the dark and use tankers that are certified would also be a catalyst to remove a lot of these junk tankers off the market. And of course, the oil demand recovery. As we move back towards closer to 100 million barrels a day, we will see uh, more crude being moved around because, especially to the U.S., we aren't going to be producing as much crude internally as we did in the past. And of course, other countries growing their demand, China, India, all the other places that we've talked about before. So that will uh, hopefully be the catalyst. I also say 2030, IMO 2030, the new engine requirements and emission requirements for uh, ocean-going shipping and how that plays into um, how people are going to look at putting a new ship. I mean, you're going to spend 100 or $200 million, whatever it costs to build a very large crude carrier, and you're not sure what type of propulsion plant you can put in there and whether it's going to meet regulations that haven't even been formulated yet. So, I put this slide, this last slide tanker test of patience. This shows you a lot of information. It shows you that, you know, 25% of the VLCC fleet, those are your very large crude carriers, the biggest crude carriers are greater, the age is greater than 15 years. So, they're entering their twilight quarter of the fleet's ending is going to be almost unserviceable in the next four to five years. Average fleet age, 10 years, that's a back to a level not seen since 2020. You can see the average age of the fleet or 2002, I mean, you see it's growing. It's, so every day that goes by, the fundamentals for the tanker market get better. I don't I didn't put the chart on here for the Suez Max, but similar. The order book is very low. you see the orders here are very low. Um, you see how many ships were built last year. You see that the order book is not that high. Um, you only have 9% of the fleet being replaced. So, um, that's, it's, it's just a waiting game. How long do you want to wait? And, uh, I think we will have a cycle. It could be a super cycle. I don't, I'm not ready to call that. Uh, but it's, you know, people have moved on. No one even talks about tankers anymore. I have small positions in some of the tanker stocks, just so I'm forced to watch them. But uh, it, like I said, it's a test of patience and a test of will. Will it be worth it when, the, when this market does turn around? I believe as oil demand recovers and as OPEC adds production, as they've indicated uh, over the next uh, each month, I think, starting this month, they're supposed to add 400,000 barrels a day of production, um, I believe that that will lead to uh, sucking up uh, supply. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens with the world economy. It's projected to continue growing, um, at least through the rest of this year and into the next year. We'll see if that takes place. That all requires energy, of course. A large part of that will be petroleum-based. So just depends. Uh, the best thing to probably do is wait for these things to break out on a chart, as Paul Tudor Jones used to suggest. Watch them wait for a breakout, and then make your entry. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Um, Appreciate the uh, continued views. Looks like um, uh, I have had some interest. I've separated the reality checks. You'll find that on other venues, which will be in these show notes. You can check if you're interested in the rants and the reality check portions. Those will be available on venues that are a little bit more open to that discussion type. So that's it for this week, guys. Appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you next week.